And so if you can give your full attention uh, and give your, you know, just lend him your ear for a few minutes so that way uh, he can, um, the Lord can minister to you and prepare you for tonight's message. Amen? All righty, here's Chris. Okay, so uh, <clears throat> I'm going to be reading uh, my text. is from Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 10. Just that one verse, uh, so I'm going to go ahead and read it. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with, your, with all your might. For there is no work, there is no uh, device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. Let me pray. Dear Lord, we just uh, thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to hear from you. And uh, if you could just minister to us through this Devo, Lord, we would, we would be humbled and, and very grateful. We love you and we praise you. And uh, we ask for you to speak. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, <clears throat> this verse is a word that's been on my heart uh, for the last few months, something that's been really speaking to me very powerfully. But within the last two weeks, um, <clears throat> within the last few weeks at the last men of valor uh, is really when this verse stood out the most. Um, it's something that I myself have trouble living, but uh, you know, by the grace of God, I continue to strive. I'm, I'm so tired of in my life not living up to the full potential that God has put in me and it really saddens me and it burdens my heart when I see the brothers and sisters that I love around me doing the same and not living up to that full potential I believe that God has a plan for each and every one of us each and every one of you in this room if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior you accept him and he fills you with his spirit he comes into you and he begins to minister to you. Then something just changes in you. He begins to build you up. He begins to equip you. He gives you your word. He shows you how to use the gospel effectively. Then he tells you to go. He commands you. He says, run. But so many times we just jog. It's a slow walk when he commands us to run and to strive after him. Does the word not say whether we eat, drink, or whatever we do? do all to the glory of God. I mean, I'm talking about everything that we do. 100% of everything that we do. When's the last time you washed the dishes for your mom to the glory of God? Or picked up a piece of trash to the glory of God? It's an easy thing to do, but it's different. It's powerful when you do it in the name of Jesus. And when I say to the glory of God, I'm not just saying, you know, do a little prayer. I'm saying, have your heart right with God. Be connected with Him in spirit and in truth. And give it 100%. All of your strength, everything that you have, that's not holding back. That's doing it to the glory of God, is being right with Him and putting everything that you have into it. Jesus said some crazy things um, when He was walking the earth. One of the things He said was, if someone compels you to go a mile, go with him too. And this is a command from our Lord. So I urge you, arise, men of God. Put on strength. Stand up for what you believe. Put 100% of yourself into this walk with God and everything. At work, go the extra mile and put on strength. At school, when you study, be diligent and ask him for wisdom. When your hands 
are lifted to God and worshiping Him, do it with all your might and with your heart right with Him. Don't just do it as an act. In conversations and relationships, you know, people know when you're not paying attention to what you're saying or when you're not giving them your all. They notice, and so does God. This may seem hard, but ask Him. Come to Him and ask Him to give you the strength. As long as you are in the will of God and striving to be more like Jesus, He will give you the strength to do it. To ignore this and to walk halfways with God and to do things halfways, is, that's laziness. Um, Solomon, one of the wisest men, wasn't one of the wisest men to ever live. Uh, he said a lot about laziness in Proverbs. Uh, in Proverbs 12.24, in Proverbs 12.24, he said, The hand of the diligent will rule, but the lazy man will be put, forth, will be put to forced labor. In Proverbs 26.14, he says, As a door turns on its hinges, so does the lazy man on his bed. In verse 16, he says, The lazy man is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. You know, this really spoke to me, especially the thing about the hinges and turning over in your bed, because, you know, you get lazy. You don't want to get out of bed sometimes. You want to stay there, get those extra five minutes. But God calls you to be greater, to, to die to your flesh, to strive, to, to move forward. There's a story of a, of a father and a servant. One day, uh, the servant goes to the father's house, and he breaks in. And he breaks into his garage, and he steals his prized car. And he's going speeding down the street, and he sees this red light. And he knows the red light is the only thing keeping him from getting away. So he decides just to, just to book it, go straight through the red light, thinks he's going fast enough, he can make it. So he goes, and he hits a car, and he kills a man. So he gets out of the car untouched. He wasn't hurt. Cars were total, runs over to the car, and he finds out the man he killed was the father's son. So, uh, you know, the police showed up, and, uh, you know, they found out what he had did. He stole a car. He killed a man. They took him to jail, and uh, when he was in jail, they let the father know what had happened. And without wasting time, uh, the father went to the jail, and he dropped the charges. He let them out. Um, he just dropped them all. When the servant realized what had happened, he repented from what he did, and he vowed to serve that father for the rest of his life. The father embraced him and called him son. Then he took him out and bought him another car. That's mercy. When the father let him out of the prison, because mercy is not getting what you deserve. He deserved to be in that prison, but the father let him off the hook. And then the father gave him grace when he, uh, when he bought him the car and he called him son. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. It's receiving up and above. So how much mercy and grace has God shown us? so much more than this and I think that that's a God worthy to serve with all of my heart Jesus uh, Jesus was asked a question and it's quoted in uh, Luke ten twenty seven, but it comes from Deuteronomy 6, 5 um, one of the great the greatest commandment of the Bible is to love the Lord your God with all your heart all your soul all your strength and with all your mind. With all. With everything that you have to give. Not half of it. 
So whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might and do it to the glory of God. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to speak your word and uh, just to uh, just thank you, Father, that you've ministered to me and I ask that uh, these people would be ministered to as well. We love you and we praise you. We give you glory and ask that you would have a, uh, your hand over the rest of the study, that you would bless it and that you would be with Alfredo. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Chris. This is kind of low. You got me? Yes. Mm-hmm. That's back. How's that sound? Ooh. All right, there's good. I don't know how much moving I'm going to do tonight, so i got to keep my space between this. I don't want to knock this over. Thank you, Chris, for that word. I think our country would look a lot different if we didn't have so many nominal Christians out there. And so it's a blessing uh, to be encouraged from his word like that. Uh, Tonight we are in Matthew chapter 26. So you can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. As you know, this is the upper room Bible study. So we cover every seven chapters. If you've been reading, last week we were in 19. So 19 plus 7 is 26. And so we find ourselves here in Matthew chapter 26. There are 75 verses. Um, But I'm not that worried, being that you guys have sat through Josh's minor prophets dialogue, two books at a time. I don't know how he does that. Um, So this should be a cakewalk for you. I pray. I hope it will be. Um, So let's go ahead and bow in a word of prayer, because we need the Lord's help. Father, it is a joy to be in your house this evening. Um, to be amongst family. And Father, we are so thankful that you have sent us the Lamb uh, that is worthy and that was slain on our behalf. Uh, So when he screamed on the cross, Lord, we can now sing and be rejoiceful and thankful that our sins are forgiven. So as we look at the preparation uh, to his cross and to his death and to his resurrection, I pray that you would speak through your word in a powerful way Um, I've had many thoughts over this text, Lord, but I don't want that to overtake what you have to say tonight. Um, So we offer this time up to you. Holy Spirit, would you fall down and illuminate the verses to us? Would you give us the strength to get through this message and even prepare our hearts now as we come to the Lord's table later on this evening? So we offer all this up unto you, and we pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. All right, so Matthew chapter 26. 75 verses. And as you know, this is the end of the Gospel of Matthew. The next chapters, 26, 27, and 28, they're the main stage to this entire Gospel. Everything that we've been reading up till now, it's, it's but an introduction. It's, it's only a prologue. It simply sets the stage for what we'll be looking at <clears throat> Excuse me, in the next couple chapters. The reason why the universe exists now is for the cross of Christ. And that's a lot to think about. To think that everything was made so Jesus could go to the cross. That's a lot. And so what we've been looking at simply points. It's just a sign to the cross. Everything in scripture points directly to the cross. It's all but a symbol. It represents something that was to come. We can go back to the beginning. 
We can look at Abel and the very first sacrifice he made to the Lord and see a glimpse there of what was to come. You look at God's provision to Noah, saving him and his family during that time of judgment. You look at Abraham as he lifted up his sword on his own son, providing the ram. You look at the picture of Jesus and Moses as he goes into Egypt and frees the people from their bondage there. Then you see him in the desert lift up the serpent, telling the people to look upon the snake to be healed and to be saved by faith. All of it points to Jesus. All of it points to Jesus. You work through the prophets. You work through the book of Leviticus. You see the temple. You see the priesthood. You see the sacrifices. It's all a foreshadowing to this main stage here. You look at the prophets, Isaiah 53, Zechariah 12 and 13. Uh, My favorite Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist. Some of you guys may not consider him an Old Testament prophet. I certainly do. You remember what he said there, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the path. And he said there in John chapter 1, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world as Jesus was approaching him. It all points to Jesus and it is all according to God's divine plan from the beginning. So look at the text tonight with me with those lens. Have that in the back of your mind as we read through and gird yourself because we got a lot. So here we go, Matthew 26, starting in verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings that he said to his disciples, You know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast lest there be an uproar among the people. Let's stop there. Now, now after it came to pass, all these sayings, what's going on here? Well, if you've been following along in Matthew, you know that we're in Passion Week. right? It's the final week of Christ's life before the cross. So in Matthew 21, you have the triumphal entry there on Sunday. He arrives at Bethany, what we now call Palm Sunday. right? He comes in, the palm branches are laid at the king's feet. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest is shouted. And then on Monday, he continues to teach. He's recognized as the Messiah. He accepts that title as the Messiah. On Tuesday, we have the, parallel of, uh, the parable excuse me, of the fig tree. He rebukes the fig tree, and then he goes in and cleanses the temple, right? He says what? My house shall be called the house of prayer. There you go. My house shall be called the house of prayer. That's on Tuesday. And so on Wednesday... We have chapters 23, 24, and 25. It's a long day of teaching by Jesus, all on Wednesday. We have what is called the Olivet Discourses there on the Mount of Olives when he's teaching. 24 and 25, we have the end time stuff, if you will, the return of Christ, the second coming of our Lord. That's all in those chapters. And so it's been a long day of teaching for Jesus. And so he opens up here in 26, and he brings it full circle of who he is specifically to his disciples. He says, now it's Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Yes, I'm the Messiah. And yes, I'm going to come back and restore everything as I've wanted to be from the beginning. But before that has to happen, I must go to the cross. I'm still the Son of Man. And he wants his disciples to get that. And it's interesting that it would happen on Passover, is it not? Remember, Passover itself is a forerunner for the cross. And so what goes on here is thousands of Jews migrate every year to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. 
And what do they bring with them? They bring with them lambs. They bring with them their sacrifice. And historians have said that about 256,000 lambs would come yearly into Jerusalem to be sacrificed in the temples. And what a fitting moment that the Father and the Son would preordain that when all these lambs would be coming into Jerusalem, there'd be one who is worthy. One who is worthy to be slain. All that blood that is being shed, and yet they had no idea that there was only one lamb that was worthy to be slain there. The others had no power to take away sins. They were not the chosen one. The lamb was a man. He was the son of man. He was walking there. And how fitting that during Passover, which represents Jesus Christ, the father and the son decide that the son will be killed that time. The divine timing of God is so perfect. You've got to sit back and you're just in awe of God and the way he does things. It's incredible. And so that's what's happening here. And then look there at verse 3. The chief priests, the scribes, they all come together and they meet at the palace of Caiaphas. And some of us know who Caiaphas was. He was the, the high priest at the time. He was the main leader. And what do they do when they meet together? The, the same thing they've been doing the whole time Jesus has been running his ministry. They want to kill him. They want to take him by trickery and kill him. But here's the problem. It's Passover. And a couple days earlier, he was hailed as the Messiah. So, of course, there's going to be uproar. The people like him. You can't kill Jesus now. And I love it because throughout Scripture, especially here in the Gospels, they've been trying to kill him in every other instance. And Jesus evades. He gets out of the city. He gets out of the city. He says things like, my time has not yet come. Behold, it is not time for me to go. And he evades and he lives. And so the first time, the only time that they decide that they will not kill him, the father and the son have decided that he will be killed. It will happen at this time. The will of man says it's not going to happen. Oh, but the will of God says that it will. He will be killed. They had no idea that two days later he would be crucified. He would be crucified. That's crazy. Let's jump down to verse 6. And when Jesus was in Bethany, at the house of Simon the leper, let's stop there real quick. Now, I just said earlier, Jesus arrived in Bethany on what day? Sunday. So he kind of jumps out of chronological order here to bring in this story about Mary that is perfect for the preparation of Jesus. So he jumps out of order here, and he goes back, and he tells a story that happened on Sunday. And as if you recall from John's gospel, Simon the leper is someone that was healed. No one would go into a leper's house unless he had been healed. So you see the beautiful harmony there in the Gospels. Let's keep going. Verse 7, or verse seven A woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil. And she poured it on his head and he sat at the table. I love that. So here comes in Mary. The other Gospels tells us that it was Mary. She was always the one sitting at the feet of Jesus. Uh, Martha was the busybody doing things, and sometimes it is just better to sit at the feet of the Lord and be taught. And that's what we see Mary here doing. She brings in this, this nice vessel, this bottle that had a very thin neck, right? Mark's gospel tells us that it was a year's worth of wages was contained in this, this bottle of perfume. And Mary just breaks the head, breaks the neck of it, excuse me, and pours it on the head of Jesus. The other gospel says, says that it runs down his feet And so if you take the combination of all the accounts there, she's dumping everything she has onto the Lord. It's falling everywhere on him. It's all over the place. She is giving all that she has in this act of worship to her Lord. 
She knows what's going to happen to him. She remembers that he had predicted his death and his crucifixion, so she's anointing him. This is her act of love and adoration and honor for her Lord. And she's doing this in love towards Jesus. And look there at the response of the disciples in verse 8. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil could have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. You have the poor with you always, but me you do not always have. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Verse 13, As surely I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. So the disciples call it a waste. John's gospel, in fact, tells us that it was Judas who raised the point that it could have been given to the poor. Interesting. And so Jesus rebukes them. He corrects them and says, no, listen, this is an act of worship. Mary is anointing me here at this time. And of course, we know that he's not undermining the teaching to not serve the poor and be an aid to the poor. We know the Bible speaks to that clearly. But in the Christian life, there are priorities in which we are to follow. And worship, my friends, is at the top of the list. Worship is at the top. And Mary understands that, and Mary is demonstrating that. And so we ought to know when we come to the Lord out of a pure heart, out of genuine love, and we give everything we have to Him, we dump it all out on Him, it never goes to waste. Because think about it, it was His... I was on his head, it was on his feet. Some of it had to fall on the floor. The entire house was probably uh, stinking of the aroma now. And the disciples call it a waste, specifically Judas. Jesus says, no, no waste here. And so what Mary is doing is what we all would have done if we were there, is anointing our Lord. This is an act of genuine worship. And she wants to honor her creator. She wants to honor her savior in doing this. And Jesus recognizes that. Look at verse 13. I love what he says here. Wherever this gospel is preached, in the whole world, I'm sorry, in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial. What does that mean? Well, think about it. Three gospel accounts contain this story. So literally, everywhere the gospel goes, so goes this story. Here we are 2,000 years later recounting the cross of Jesus. And what also are we reading about? the worship of Mary. When God inspired this gospel and the other ones, he made sure that the authors penned this story. And now we have the memorial of Mary and her worship to the Lord. That's what we have. That's great. And so Judas at this point is probably so ticked because he wanted the money. He said it could have been given to the poor when in reality he probably would have just taken it himself. And look at verse 14 now. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him thirty pieces of silver, so that from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. So we're still Sunday now. Judas leaves that little house, and he goes to betray Jesus. The man who was following him for three years had seen his miracles, had heard the teachings, is now in a position where he rejects Christ to feed the craving, right? We know all along that he had an issue with finances. He had an evil passion for wealth that drove him. 
The Lord did not drive him. It was his, it was his desire for finances, for wealth, for riches. He was a fraud the whole time. And so now he's asking the question, what will you give me if I were to betray Jesus? That's the same question I got written down in my Bible. What am I going to take in order to betray my Lord? What is it going to take for me? 30 pieces of silver? That was the price of a slave. That's it. Is it my own ambitions? Is it my own dreams? Is it my own career? Is it some sin that resides in my life that I can't live without? Something that I am so ready to reject Christ at any moment and take that? I pray that would not be our attitude when we look at this passage here. When we look at Mary in the comparison here with Judas, I mean, that is heavy. Like that, three years walking with the Lord. I haven't been walking with the Lord three years yet. And I'm sure there's a hundred people that would call me a Christian too. But what happened if I were to walk away and betray him for 30 pieces of silver or for something nice, some evil passion that I have hidden within me? Dangerous. It's dangerous. Let's continue on. Verse 17. We're now back to the present time. Matthew has left that old story. And he jumps back over to the Passover. Now on the first day of the feast of the unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying to him, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When evening had come, he sat down with the twelve Now as they were eating, he said, Surely I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful, and each of them began to say to to him, Lord, is it I? He answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? He said to him, you have said it. And so now we're in the upper room. The upper room Bible study finally gets to go into the upper room. Literally. Here we are. And so they're having their meal. Jesus is there. They're at some point halfway through their meal because we know they've been dipping into the dish of food, right? So Jesus gives this alarming announcement that one of you is going to betray me. And yet he's so patient in doing so because he doesn't reveal it quite yet. He just says, you've dipped with me. That's who's going to betray me. And so everyone's in there. Well, Lord, that's all of us. And so now there's time for personal reflection. Lord, is it I? I mean, I know how wicked I can be. Maybe that is me. And so they begin to ask. They want assurance from the Lord. Lord, is it I that will betray you? Is it I? And even Judas gets in on it, who it said verses ago that he had already betrayed him. He calls him rabbi, as if to sneak in real deceitfully. Rabbi, is it I? And he knew very well. Notice also here in the upper room, another account that's given in John 13, and that's the, the washing of the disciples' feet. The night before Jesus was going to die, he is washing his disciples' feet in perfect humility and submission, giving his last discourse on submission and on humility, washing his feet. And he washed the feet of Judas. 
the one who was about to betray him, he washes his feet too. In another gospel account, we're told that the, the conversation between Judas and, and Jesus finally ended, ended. After he said, you have said it, he tells him to leave. He tells Judas to leave the upper room. And he said, whatever you go to do, do it quickly. And Judas knew. Jesus knew, and Judas knew. And so he leaves. So before we jump into verse 26, know that Judas is gone now. He does not take part in the Lord's Supper. The Lord washes his feet, displays his patience, and then he tells him to leave. And whatever you do, go to do quickly. And so now it's time for the new institution. The new covenant here in verse 26. Follow along. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. I love this topic here, but sadly over the years there's been terrible division about how the Lord's Supper is to be given. What do we go... What are we to do? Is it, is it for believers only? Do we hand it out to non-believers? Are the Catholics right? Does it really become the blood and the body of Jesus? Are we really eating Jesus over and over and over? But let's look at what he says here. Look at 26. Take, eat, this is my body. Now he's speaking to his disciples, and we know his disciples were aware of the Old Testament. And if they ever read the book of Deuteronomy, they would know that it says in there, not to be a cannibal, right? Cannibalism was against the law. So why would Jesus contradict his own law? And look at the response there. They take and eat. They're, you know, nothing's out of the ordinary. If you would have ripped off a finger, we probably would have seen a different response from the disciples. But he understands. They understand what's going on here. He's handing them the bread. Take and eat. This is my body. The Greek translation tells us that it was a symbol. They knew exactly what he meant that the bread that they were eating was symbolizing his body. It's like in other passages where Jesus says, I am the vine. Is he literally a stick? I am the water of life. Did he, he doesn't turn into a bucket. He calls himself the door. We know what these things mean. It's very simple. You don't have to be deep in your theology to understand that he's handing them bread. It's pretty simple. And plus, he was physically saying, bam, take and eat. This is my body. This is the broken body that is about to be broken for you. This is the face that's going to take many punches to it. This is the back that's going to be broken open. These are the hands. These are the feet that will be nailed to the cross. This is the skin that's going to have splinters go up and down on it as I hang on a tree for three hours and bleed for you. I'm doing this for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. And then he hands them the cup. And he says, my blood is being poured out for you. It's not just enough that his body is open and blood begins to come out, but life is literally flowing out of him on our behalf. Blood must be shed, but we are to see that the life is being poured out of our Savior on our behalf. When the nails go in, when the punches are hit, when the cat of nine tails is whipped against his back, that's the blood that he's pouring out for us. And notice he's doing this on the Passover, the celebration of the Passover. You know how Jesus celebrates the Passover? He ends it. He says it's done. 
There's a new covenant now. The Passover represented what was going to happen, and guess what? It's going to happen. Here's the new one. And you're to do this in remembrance of me, knowing that he was going to the cross. The Passover's done with. There's no need to go into a temple and make sacrifices anymore. Hebrews tells us that he went in as the holy priest and he made a sacrifice once and for all for the remission of sins. It's done. There's no need for the temple. And so he celebrates it by ending it and instituting the new covenant. Look there at verse 29. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So we're to take this cup and drink. We're to take the bread and eat in remembrance of him. And so we're gone. And guess what? When he restores his kingdom, that's when he'll take communion with us again. And so if you wonder what we'll be doing in heaven, we're going to be saying, worthy, worthy, worthy as the lamb. Three times over, over and over and over again, as the creatures do right now until he comes back. And he will not take and eat until we are there with him. And I love that. We will always remember him. As the Olympic athletes wear medals, so does Jesus. And you know what his medals are? They're the holes in his hands. They're the holes in his side. He wears them as medallions, as prizes. As we look at the athletes and we recall what they've done and what they've accomplished, we look at Jesus for all eternity and remember what he's done for us. And so he's proud of what he's done. He rejoices in what he's done because he's glorified himself and he's redeemed his children back to him. And so those are his medals. Those are his prizes. And for all eternity, we will look at him and be so thankful that he's given us life, that the, the, the gates of heaven are open. The gates of hell have shut. And now we have heaven. And now we have Christ forever. And that's what he tells us there. Verse 30. Favorite part right here. And when they had, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. They sung a hymn. Jesus is singing. He's singing with his boys. They call it a Hillel. But they're singing. And I love that because Jesus knows what he has to endure. He knows he's going to be betrayed. He knows that he's going to be arrested and falsely accused. And he still has a heart of praise to the Father. He is still leading his troops in song and in adoration to the Lord. And many times we don't like to do that. No, my day sucks right now. I'm not going to sing. I've got a lot going on. I can't possibly worship in this, in this environment with this problem. Lord, you know my issue. How, do you, how can you possibly want me to worship you right now? And that doesn't even come close to what Jesus was going to experience, and he's still leading his boys in worship. They sing a hymn before he goes into the garden and prays. 31, man, we're flying. I love it. Here we go. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee, Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Jesus said to him, And surely I say to you that this night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all his disciples. So Jesus gives the prediction. It's coming, you guys, and you will flee from me. You will not stay. 
And we see the first sign of a Christian or of a disciple or of a believer who will experience downfall. And the first one is this, when there's overconfidence in your own abilities, when there's too much confidence in the flesh, when you think you really can do it on your own. Lord gives them a serious warning here and, oh, it's cool. No, we're good. We're good, Lord. I'll even die with you. I won't deny you. And so said all the disciples. They went along with him. And so I want you to pay attention to that overconfidence in the flesh. And we'll see what that leads to. Now they're in the garden, verse 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther and fell on his face, praying, saying, O my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So the the Lord's Supper is over. We're now in the garden. And Jesus goes off to pray. And he asks that his disciples would be there with him, yet they fall asleep. And many times we kind of write this this little passage off because we really don't understand what's going on. And and sometimes we say, well, Jesus was just feeling the weightiness of having to die. And so he says, well, not my will, but your will be done. Almost as if he doesn't want to go through with the cross. And we don't know how to look at that. It seems weird that he's, he's praying to the Father and he's saying, well, not my will, but your will be done. But I think it's more than just death. The cup that he has to drink is more than just physically dying. If we were to look down the history and see the martyrs of the church, we could probably name a handful, a dozen at least, of good men and godly men and women who stood boldly in the face of persecution and trials and even death. But none of them became sin. 2 Corinthians tells us that he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. None of them know what that means. We don't know what that means to be sinless and then to have sin placed on you. None of us know what it means to be forsaken forsaken by the Father. Jesus, who was so intimate, so close with the Father, is about to be forsaken by Him. And so the the Son was forsaken so that we would never have to be forsaken. He endured that for us. He was the one who experienced that separation from God. And that's the cup that he's drinking. He's drinking and taking on the wrath of God. That's the cup that he has to drink. That's the suffering that he must endure. In fact, the suffering that he had on that cross is way worse than an eternal torment in hell for anyone who rejects Jesus and goes there. The three hours that Jesus spent on that cross is far greater than what those will have to experience when they're in hell. Far greater. Because he was God, he was perfect, and he endured death. He had to endure the wrath of God. We deserve that wrath. That's all deserved. Everyone in hell, there will be no one in hell saying, I don't deserve this. Jesus didn't deserve it, and he took it anyway. He took it on our behalf. 
So that's the cup that he's drinking. And if you'll recall back in Matthew chapter 4, the temptations there of Jesus before his ministry started, he's led by the Spirit into the desert. And we're told there that Jesus comes to him with three different temptations. And each one of those temptations is a way for him to veer off the cross. Because Jesus, I'm sorry, Satan knows that his end is at the cross. He knows that he's defeated at the cross. He knows that he's conquered at the cross. And that's where we find victory. So each one of those temptations is an attempt by Satan to get him off the cross. And so what we see here in the garden is Jesus going through the same thing. We see the mystery between him being 100% God and 100% man. And kind of the unity of that relationship in which his humanity is experiencing the temptation to not go through with it. You see, the Father sent the Son, but the Son was not forced to the cross. It says there in Hebrews, the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross willingly. He went on his own accord because he knew that the Lord's will was perfect. And so he's experiencing that temptation of not wanting to endure it. Not wanting to go there as a human. But he knows that he has to. And so this happens three times. Look there at verse 42. Again, a second time, he went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words, Your will be done, your will be done, your will be done. Jesus is focused now. He's going to the cross. He knows exactly what he's doing. And so he wakes up his disciples there in 45. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now, I mentioned the first sign of a recipe for disaster, right? You putting too much confidence in your own flesh and your own abilities when tragedy strikes. Here's the second time. A lack of preparation in prayer. A lack of preparation in prayer and too much confidence in your own abilities. Too much confidence in your own flesh. And we see all the disciples fall to this. Not just Peter, but all of them do. And so he tells them to wake up. We have to be going now. And as they're waking up, we see there in verse 47, Behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, Put away your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? How then could the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? In that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out as against the robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. There at the end of the verse, then all the disciples forsook him and fled. 
So Judas comes and gives him the kiss. You know, in those times, if you were a slave, you kissed the foot. And if you were an enemy and you just lost a battle, you would kiss the hand or kiss the ring or inside the palm. If you were a good friend, you would kiss on their garments. But only the closest inner circle, only the brothers, would come in and kiss on the cheek. And that's what his betrayer comes in and does. That's why he responds and he calls him friend. Why are you come? What are you doing here? And so one of them stretches out the sword. He cuts off the ear. Jesus quickly rebukes his own disciples. He says, all who live by the sword will die by it. Because the kingdom of God, we know, is not taken by force. It's not taken by violence. Paul wrote there that the spiritual battle we have is not with flesh and blood, not with principalities or powers. It's a spiritual one. And that's where to arm ourselves. Jesus is saying, listen, if this is just a physical battle, I have legions of angels that would come down and handle this. That's not an issue. But my reign is not just over the earth. It's a spiritual realm. It's a heavenly reign. That's what's going on here. And then notice what he says to the soldiers. Was I not with you all the days in the temple and you come at me like this? I know you guys have been waiting to take me, but listen, before the foundations of the world, me and the Father knew this was going to happen. You could have come with one soldier and I would have left with you. There's no need for all this. Jesus knew exactly what was going on. And so ask yourself the question, where is the Father when this is all happening? Where's God the Father when his son's being arrested and betrayed and falsely accused and beaten? Where is he? Look at verse 54 and 56. It tells us that the Father is in heaven fulfilling Scripture after Scripture after Scripture after Scripture after Scripture after Scripture. This was all according to the divine plan of God. Even look at verse 24. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of Him. The Father knows exactly what's happening. He's in complete control at this time. He is sovereign over all of these things. So if the Father is sovereign over the worst evil that has ever been done in the world, which is the crucifixion of Jesus, then what is stopping us from thinking He is not sovereign over the trials that you go through? When we ask the question, where is the Father right now in my life? Where is he at? Oh, he has planned from the beginning of time that you would endure through this and that you would rely on him and that you would trust in him because he's fulfilling the perfect plan for your life. And you've got to believe in that. You've got to take rest and comfort in God's sovereignty over these situations because he's fulfilling scripture in his son's life. And Jesus knows that. And we ought to recognize that as well. So we see there the disciples fleed. There was an overconfidence in their flesh. There was a lack of prayer. And so when trial hits, they flee. They're gone. They're nowhere to be found. Peter included. And so Jesus is left by himself, and now he enters into the Sanhedrin to go on trial. Look there at 57. And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. 
But at last two false witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. How incredible. Even before the most self-righteous, blameless people in all the land, they can't even find anything wrong with Jesus. He really was the sinless man who walked the earth. Not a single person could find any fault with him. I know if I was on trial, there'd be a mile-long line waiting to come in and announce something I did wrong. There would be. And they can't find anybody. It gets so bad that they have to bring in more false witnesses. And they actually take a statement of Jesus, but they twist it. It's not what he had originally said. In John 2.19, he says, Destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. Two verses later, he says, They did not know that he was speaking of the temple of his body. He was prophesying his resurrection by his own power. Not by the power of the Spirit, not also by the power of the Father, but his own power was going to raise him up. He was going to raise himself from the dead. And that's what he's saying there. But they take it to mean otherwise because the temple to the Jews is like the most sacred thing for them. So to say that I'm going to destroy that, that's like telling the Muslims you're going to blow up Mecca. They're not going to be happy. And so they're offended at this statement. But let's think about that for a moment. What did Jesus mean when he said he was going to destroy this temple? Could he have met something else as well? I think he could have. Because after his sacrifice on the cross, is there any need for the temple? Nope. Is there any need for sacrifices? Nope. Is there any need for religious acts anymore as soon as Jesus accomplished what he came to do? Absolutely not. Religion is done away with when Jesus steps on the scene. There is no temple except for you and I. We are now the temples with the Spirit of Christ indwelling in us. The temple is gone. It's done for. There's no need for it anymore. And so in some sense, yes, it was going to be destroyed because you didn't need to go there. And so every Passover after the cross, God has not commanded for it to happen. The law was fulfilled in, according to Matthew 5.17. He says, I didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill the law. It ends with Jesus. And so the temple was going to be destroyed in one sense. Let's keep looking at the second accusation. Verse 62, And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it? These men testify against you. But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, Hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have for witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. Verse 66, what do you think to the rest of the chief priests? They said, he is deserving of death. Then they spat in his face and beat him. And the others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, prophesy to us, Christ. Who is the one who has struck you? And so now here comes the false accusation. All of you know why Jesus was crucified, right? Further and beyond just paying for our sins, the accusation that was brought against them was what? Blasphemy. They knew exactly what he meant when he said, you will see me at the right hand of the Father. And it's interesting because in Acts chapter 7, the first martyr of the church is Stephen. And you know what he announces before he dies, before he's stoned to death? 
that he sees Jesus at the right hand of the Father to the same people who crucified Jesus. It all came full circle for him. That's why they were outraged, excuse me, outraged even more. Because they remember what Jesus said at his trial, that you will see me hereafter at the right hand of the Father. And so Stephen announces to him, not even aware of the crucifixion and what was said during the trial, that I see the right hand of the Father. And guess who's standing there? Jesus. It all came to pass for him. And so this is the false accusation that's brought on Jesus. And I love the picture that's painted here. Because if some of you guys uh, know, in the Old Testament... An innocent, blameless lamb would be brought into the temple, right, and laid on the altar. And when they would kill it, they would place their hand over its head and then cut the neck, and the blood would spill out, and the atonement would be made. But what the hand on the head symbolized was the transfer of guilt, the transfer of iniquity, the transfer of sin from the people of, from the people of Israel onto the lamb. And so that lamb came in with no sin. And Jesus came into that temple, into that courtyard with no sin. And so the transfer of sin is the false accusation that they brought on him. That goes on Christ's account. And it perfectly fulfills the innocent lamb, the blameless lamb, the worthy lamb that comes in, receives an accusation that is not due to him. Yet he takes it anyway, along with the sin of the world, to add to that. And so we have here at the end of the passage, the king of the universe is being punched and being spit on for you and for me. He's enduring this for us. The creator, the eternal God, the everlasting one is having spit on his face as they blindfold him and as they mock him. He's doing that for you and he's doing that for me. That's his grace for us. So let's finish this up. Look at the denial of Peter here, verse 69. Now Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him, saying, You also were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are saying. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were, who were there, This fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. And a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, Surely you also are one of them, for your speech betrays you. He sounded like a Galilean. And then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Our final verse of the night, verse 75. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus, who had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. It comes to pass, the prediction from verse 34. We see the lack of prayer, the overconfidence in self, leads to denial, leads to rejection. But I don't teach this coming to you saying that I have mastered this skill by any means, that there's never been a time in my own life where I've put too much confidence in my own abilities or I've demonstrated a, a lack of prayer. That has for sure happened a number of times. And the Lord knows how many times I've betrayed Him. How many times I've refused to stand up. And it's happened to me. But I love the attitude of Peter here at the end. He, we, he weeps bitterly. We see signs of repentance. 
and how desperately that needs to be in our lives when denial happens. Because the mercy of God is so great and the grace of God is so great. I love the grace of God because I need it every day, just like Peter did. And we see the restoration of Jesus. There at the end of the Gospel of John, Peter is having breakfast with who on the beach? Jesus. He restores him. He says, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? I love you, Lord. Then he gives him a command. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. And from that time on, we see a completely different life in Peter. Because there in the book of Acts, when he's standing on trial before the same people who crucified his Lord, he is commanded to stop preaching. And he makes this statement, it is better to obey God rather than man. And he refuses to deny him at that point. We see the restoration of God. And I love that. I love the grace. Because we so desperately need it every day. And so as we come to this communion table tonight, I would love if there would be a time of reflection on where we stand. Do we find ourselves being the Mary, dumping all that we have before the feet of our Lord in worship and in adoration? When we just come to Him in worship, not expecting anything back? Because many times we come to the table expecting something. We have a need at the communion table. Or we give because there's a need. But when's the last time that we just worship because Jesus was worthy of it? Like Mary did here in this picture. Dumping all that she had a year's worth on the feet and on the head of her Lord? Or do we take the position of Judas? Are we following Jesus for years? And then when that moment comes to betray Him, to feed our own craving, are we giving in to that? Are we going to reject Him? I pray that there would not be a single Judas in this room. I pray that there would be no Judases here in this room. That we would come with humble hearts as Mary did and anoint all that we have, dump all that we have at the feet of our Lord. Give Him everything. Give Him everything at this communion table. And allow this to be a wonderful time of reflection because He screamed on that cross so that we can sing now. He bore the wrath so that we don't have to. 2,000 years ago, God in the flesh walked this earth and lived the life that we couldn't so that we can be forgiven. And so that we could have an intimate relationship with the Father mediated by Christ. And so we have got to sing. We've got to rejoice in that. I'm excited about that. Because I need the gospel every day of my life. It's not just something that happened at my conversion. The gospel is now. I believe in the gospel today. And I rejoice in the gospel today. And that's not easy to do every day. And so we so desperately need the communion table. Sometimes it's hard to get it at church. There's been such a swing with some churches doing it all the time. It takes away from it, so other churches uh, rarely do it. But I love to take communion. I love to have time with my Jesus. And so as we go to the table tonight, be reminded of the bread. Be reminded of the wine, of the blood that was spilt for you. And rejoice in it. Rejoice in it. We're going to have some of the brothers come up, start passing it out. Brian's going to come up and do some worship. Can you hobble up here? All right. I'll give you your chair. Let me close in prayer and then uh, prepare our hearts. Father, we bow before you today, uh, recognizing our position with you, Lord. 
There is no way that we deserve to stand before you now, but we are so thankful for Jesus that it's been his righteousness that's been given to us. And now we can rejoice. We can sing. We can have an audience with you in your temple. The psalmist wrote, who can ascend to the mountain of the Lord? Only those with a pure heart and clean hands. And we know that comes only because of Jesus. And so we're so thankful for that. And Lord, as we remember what you've done for us, we ask that you would be in this place. That we would be reminded of the body that was broken and the blood that was spilt. And we would be so blessed and encouraged to to make a change for you even now. If there's been sin in our lives, Lord, we want to rid ourselves of it. And we plead with you now to help us do that. Uh, So prepare us now. We ask that this time of communion would be glorifying to you, Lord. And that we would be sanctified through this process as well. We thank you so much for your word and what it does to our hearts and what it does to our lives. Uh, So bless the rest of this night. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.